Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Jed Payne, so stoked to have you. I, I guess back on the show, we did a, a patron exclusive episode like over a year ago, maybe almost two years ago. Uh, was that two years ago? I, at least a year ago, right? About your, uh, I guess it was a bit more about your podcast, Church and Other Drugs, and your whole sort of addiction recovery process, which we are, we will touch on today, but is not going to be the main focus of our chat. I want to preface our conversation with two things. The first is that this is just to put a pin in people's mind. We're going to come to this at the very end, but it's sort of one of the reasons for this conversation. And people have brought it up in the Facebook group that there is an idea that in a lot of Christian circles, that social services, that utilizing sort of any kind of government funded or government subsidized social services is not the same thing as like 
inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth or ministry or whatever, that there's like a hard line. And a, a bunch of the listeners of the show and, and patrons do social work of one kind or another and are engaged with those programs and have said, hey, what, it would be cool to like talk about that. Like in the earlier days when I was saying when the when the episode titles were you have permission to blank, like, you know, the idea was like to utilize social services or, or whatever, something like that. And so that's kind of a backdrop. We're going to make it explicit at the end, but I just want to like put that out there to have people be thinking about. I think that's a false distinction pretty clearly. And I'm sure you do too as well. Jed is somebody yes, who is totally in the center of that. And then the, the next thing I want to say is this is kind of like a way that I have, like a metaphor I have of thinking about your life, where it's at now and, and countless others. And it's David Brooks, the uh, columnist and author he has a book that came out, I think, last year called The Second Mountain. And it's basically this illustration of in adulthood, we climb up our first mountain, which is something to do with ego, career, success. It's us trying to, like, figure out our value in the world. Then often something happens which knocks us down that mountain, and we realize it wasn't what we thought it would be. This could be, like, in your case, perhaps it's drugs or alcohol, but – the actor Jim Carrey, for instance, it was getting to the top, becoming the most famous comedian in the world and not being happy. And then he kind of took a break and found some other stuff. And then the second mountain, that is what some people do after that. And it's where they look back at that first mountain, they figure out what they have to offer, and they climb a different mountain for a different reason. It's like, here's what I have experienced and what I know and, and what I can do. And how can I sort of take all of that and use it for good in the world? So it's less focused on my career, my name, my whatever. And now it's like a turning outward. And that is the first thing I thought of when you and I were texting, which led to this conversation because we're both in school and mm -hmm. I'm in grad school learning some of the stuff that you use as a addictions counselor. And we were chatting about that and I immediately thought Second Mountain – and I was like, let's do well, – well, that's great. Let's chat. Let's do this. Let's do that conversation. So yeah. you don't have to say anything about that. I mean I, I'm curious your thoughts, but I didn't send you that question ahead of time. It's more just like a way that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. No, that's – maybe I've heard it before, but it's not uh, immediately coming up to mind. But I would say, yeah, I think I just went through – so I guess you could say, yeah, the first mountain would have been addiction, which – uh, led me to becoming an addic addictions counselor. And then kind of like uh, any industry, like people that love movies, you know, want to get into the film industry. And then they especially like, like I was an artist, wanted to do special effects. And then I just read countless stories of people that they just get abused and overworked and underpaid. And it's kind of this dark side of the industry. And the drug treatment industry is, is no different. And I think I want to say they were very surprised at work after I'd made it like nine months. They're like, oh, you're still here. And I was like, yeah. And the turnover wow. rate is so high. It's so high. And especially for people that are in recovery, you go into the field with a certain mindset. And I was very naive and black and white in my thinking. And like, this is how I recovered. Therefore, this is the only way to recover. And this is what I need to teach people and really taking ownership over people's success or failure, which is probably 
the most common mistake. And my, uh, my clinical supervisor was really good at saying, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it. And that was huge. And I was just like, oh, okay, I, I get it. Because I would get really disheartened. The majority of, of your clients are not going to get better first run, right? And you really have to understand the concept of, of seed planting and long-term growth. And they might not get it now, but something you say may click years later. And so, yeah, that was probably my, my second mountain was once I'd gotten into this career, like, oh man, this isn't what I thought it was. Is this something I can adapt to or is this something I want nothing to do with? And, you know, luckily it's been the former and I've been able to adapt to it, but there was definitely some times where it was like, ugh. I don't know about all this. <laughs> yeah, so so maybe even that two mountain thing is a little neat. It's a little tidy for for the actual lived experience of how this stuff goes and you know, just like on a mountain there are switchbacks and sometimes mm-hmm. you got to go downhill to go uphill again, you know. There there's all of that in there too. Sometimes um, you fall off. <laughs> sometimes you fall off, you fall back down quite a ways, right? Well, let's let's zoom back out. Let's talk about your early life. Let's let's look at this first mountain, so to speak. What do you think set you up for drug addiction in the first place? Something happened, something was missing. Uh, I, I don't know, just I'm I'm wide open on that one. Sure, sure. And a, a great metaphor analogy that I've, I've heard used is that you kind of load your gun with the bullets of trauma, environment, nurture, genetics, and then the actual drug chemical uh, pulls the trigger. So oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's very true because it, it's definitely not a either or thing. It's, it's, it's absolutely a combination of things. So I have the genetic component. In my case, it was, uh, it skipped a few generations. Like my, my parents were fervently against it because they were like a uh, Jesus freak movement Christians, so never did anything like that. I think my my dad's father had some issues with it and on that side of the family. And then as a personality type, I was very prone to worry and anxiety. And what happened early on in my childhood, which I always point back to, was that I got these legalistic, religious, fear-based ideas about God guilt, shame, and hell. Okay. And, you know, I don't know if it's, it probably was not what was said to me, but what I heard and what I internalized was that my natural desires, specifically in relation to sex, were very sinful. And because of this, I am a sinner, this, this dirty garment that must be cleaned, and I must constantly do things to appease this vengeful God in the sky. So that that was like I, I was one of those people that said the sinner's prayer <laughs> religiously. I've been baptized multiple times. And what I found was when I became a teenager and my, you know, male teenage desires became increased, I found that when I did drugs, I was able to engage in activities guilt free. OK, and that was huge. Also, part of my personality was that I was a big imagination play guy. So whatever movie I saw that week, I would be that character for the next week in my, you know, in my playtime. And honestly, what drugs kind of do, and I remember the day that I I grew up 
air quotes and I tried to like play with my toys and it didn't work. Like I had lost the imagination. And that was a, I remember that day and it was a serious like, oh, now what? And then when I found drugs, specifically like uh, hallucinogens, it was like I was able to play again. Okay. And it was kind of like I, I got into, you know, the standard drug movies like Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. I started listening to Modest Mouse and that became my new identity and my thing. So it was all the combination of that. I also had a, you know, I, I struggled with mental health, uh, depression. I had a Tourette syndrome in the, in the form of like facial tics and I would blow air out of my nostrils. And so I got made fun of for that, which made it worse. And so I had a lot of problems that drugs solved. And so in the short first, term, right in the short term. Yeah, right. And because of the genetic disposition, there's this invisible line that gets crossed as a person with a disease of addiction. And when that line got crossed, uh, I no longer had the power of choice. Right. And then now I'm just an addict. Yeah, that's so interesting. A lot to pick up there. A quick note about the genetics. I mean, your parents not touching the stuff as part of the Jesus movement. I mean, that doesn't mean that it wasn't in them, right? My father-in-law, sure. my father-in-law is kind of Jesus movement boomer, does not drink. His dad was probably an alcoholic and he's he's just decided I'm not I'm not going to do that and like he he may or may not have it. He hasn't really found out, but he's playing it safe and uh, right. in what I think is a very reasonable fashion, right? So that's just one thing. So it could totally be, it maybe didn't skip any generations, right? Right, right, right. It seems uh, the two paths most people take if their parents struggled with substances is I want nothing to do with that or what is so good about this that they're choosing it over me. Let me investigate. Or, you know, third, I'm smarter than my parents. So like, you know, he's a crackhead, but I'm just going to do this and they fall for the same trap. Right. Yeah. The other angle that that I was picking up on just because of my own training is this stuff around religious scrupulosity. That That's the clinical term for it, of you, of you doing the sinner's prayer multiple times, being baptized multiple times. That whole idea of, well, I, you know, I'm, I can't be sure that I got it right and it's actually like a magic formula and, you know, I want to make sure, you know, that is a, a manifestation of deep anxiety, and then you mentioned depression as well, and anxiety and depression are often comorbid. They occur at the same time. And so just, you, you just did have, like, for whatever reason, and I would say this is probably genetic as well, these kind of, you know, like my own panic disorder, which has been lifelong, is probably genetic. It's, it's a combo of genetics. My mom has it. My grandpa seemed to have had it, had it her dad. And then my mom was anxious when she was raising me for many years and dealing with panic attacks for many years of my life. So I'm sure I learned some habits and stuff from that. It's not her fault. You know, it's just, that's how it goes. Uh, So it is, it's like a, it's like that. And we all just get a sort of random inheritance. Like it's possible theologically speaking that it's not random, but from our vantage point, it certainly is, is a lot of chance. I think at one point, too, and I realize now like how insulting the question could have been, but I was like, Dad, do you think, uh, so what do you think about that sins of the father verse? Like, am I being punished for things that you and grandpa did? And he was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) That's good. Although, I I mean, I think, oh, yeah, the Old Testament has that straight up, and then Jesus sort of pushes back on that. Right. But, uh, you know, from a, 
a modern perspective, they could really just be talking about like genetics. You know, oh, totally. or, or it's kind of yeah. like, and this is what I tell clients all the time that, that come from broken family lines. It's like, okay, well, it's going to, you have the chance to end that. Like you can break the quote family curse by, by changing and getting out of that. Otherwise it is just going to continue. Well, there's something really interesting about that. There's an extra work required to do that, right? <laughs> so my father-in-law is a, is a cycle breaker in terms of the much better man that he has been for my wife than his father was for him, my wife and her sister both. And, and that is the thing that I, maybe the thing that I respect most about him when I'm able to zoom back and sort of think about his life. How do you talk about that with people, with, with clients? Like, you know, it's a bummer, but it's going to be harder for you than it is for some people. Does that come up? Do people think of it that way? Am I projecting something else onto that? Yeah, just kind of matter of factly, just given the choice of like, you know, I'm, I'm very, very, very big. And this is why culture today bothers me so much. Uh, I'm very big on on victims don't recover, right? And it's like, okay, uh, your dad beat you when you're a kid or whatever, or yelled at you as emotionally abusive. That's, that's awful. We can grieve that we can accept that you are now an adult. It is now your responsibility to to change that. Like just because you have reasons or explanations for your current state of mind or actions does not then excuse your behaviors. It's now your responsibility. It's like, Hey, do you want to move past this or not? If you still just want to be a victim, then that, then that's fine. You're still going to, then you're going to get the same result you've been getting. But if you want something different, this is what it's going to take. And then just, you know, looking at the potential good outcomes like, and especially if they have kids, cause that's usually the easiest way. It's like, cause they will say, I'll, I'll never do what I did to my kid. And then it's like, well, check it out. You have been, you know, I hate to tell you, but you have been maybe not in that direct term. Well, we're going to, and we're going to get yeah. to that of how you actually go about saying quote unquote, or, you know, communicating these yeah. things to your clients, which is actually where we started chatting about this, but that, we'll save that for later. But that, that's essentially it is, is then that'll click for them. And it's like, oh, okay, well then, yeah, if they have a good motivation, then they're more willing to do the work, especially if, if they've reached a point where the pain, the consequences of their behavior have gotten so great that they're willing to do anything. Now that, that willingness will wax and wane, it'll come and go, but you know, the key is just striking while the iron's hot. Yeah. A few things in there, but some of them I'm going to specifically save for later, it does seem like at a societal discourse level, it's hard to make this distinction between a victim mentality and a survivor mentality. That is, I think, easier to understand in the context of like one person working with their counselor uh, and, and working on their own sort of mental status as relates to their past. You know, it, like when people are just trying to come to terms with that there have been a lot of victims of X or Y, you know, racial, sexual, gender discrimination, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to say it. There's almost like a, a line between, well, here is what has happened. There are actually victims. There are, mm-hmm. you know, there is injustice that affects people. They are victims of that injustice. On the other hand, if that person is working towards some change in their life that they want to find, it's not as useful maybe for them 
to stay in a victim mentality, right? So objectively, they're a victim. Subjectively, it's looking more and more like it might be better for them to think of themselves as a survivor, to lean yes. into like the strengths that they have, because it's looking like strengths are a, a better motivator than sort of wrongs perpetrated to oneself, you know, in terms of motivations. But that is already like a fairly complex distinction that like you're just not going to get in an op ed most of the time or For a sure. tweet or something. Right. And <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, I don't know that that's just interesting. It seemed worth noting. Yeah, totally. So I don't want to get too far into the gory details of your dark years. We did talk about it on the patron episode, but also it's just less what I'm interested in today. But just sure. give us a little bit like how bad did it get? at its worst point and when and when did you first decide to get help and were those i'm interested if those were the same moment or if those were different sure i'll go because i was thinking to i always think of because there are so many uh points of of depravity but i think and it's it's funny after you know telling my story dozens and dozens of times uh to me it's all in working with addicts it's all just like oh yeah it's it's just like you know, buying milk and bread at the grocery store, but I forget that it is uh, pretty ridiculous. So probably a good summation of where my addiction takes me is that uh, one time when I was, and I've, I've been addicted to the major drugs at different times, you know, crackhead, uh, meth addict, heroin addict. Uh, at this point, I was really bad on uh, pain pills. And so I was at a sober living house and I was uh, detoxing from the pain pills. And I was like, how, how am I going to get pain pills? And so I was like, well, I'll just, um, and I had insurance. So I was like, I need to figure out a way to go to the emergency room. So I, I brewed a pot of coffee, immediately poured it on my hand, like straight from the pot. And it, my hand turned, you know, scalded. And so I, I hopped on, I had a moped, I hopped on my moped and drove to the emergency room. And by the time I got there, uh, it was like back to normal color. And so I'm like, God, crap. So <laughs> I'm so I'm, I'm sitting laugh. outside. It's funny, though. Oh, no, it's it's yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's so ridiculous. So I'm sitting outside the emergency room and I'm like, what am I going to do? And I uh, had my uh, a Bic lighter. And so I just hit the lighter and I just started cooking the the underside of my hand. And I did it for like, you know, four or five minutes. And I looked at it and it didn't look bad. And then I, I just wiped the soot away and like all of my skin came with it and I had burned it like down to the, the white muscle sinew. And I went inside and told him that I burned it on my, my moped engine. And then I, I doctor shopped that injury. I would go to every urgent care in the city and then I'd go to the urgent cares and the, the cities adjacent. And I was living out of a hotel room and I was like cleaning it with like, hotel water and toilet paper and some toilet paper had started grafting into my skin as it was regrowing. And the last doctor I went to, it had started becoming gangrenous. And he was like, I'm going to have to cut your hand off. And I was like, ha ha. He's like, no, I'm very serious. Like it is so infected. So that that's a good summation of wow. like where my addiction will take me. I mean, it's, wow. it's literally absolute abject desperation. Oh my gosh. That's heavy. Yeah. Was that the time that you decided to take your first no. shot? No, no. <laughs> the 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 first time it, it got I'm bad sorry. enough to that I had to go to um, 
inpatient treatment was just when I was a senior in high school and I started shooting heroin at, at 17 years old. Like I was a you know, senior in high school. And even then it wasn't my choice. Uh, and I kind of, they were, my parents tried to ambush me to go to treatment and I ran away and lived with this girl in Charleston, South Carolina. And things just got worse and worse. And I started uh, injecting cocaine and it was just one night uh, just out of drugs and for what it probably a God thing. I just, it was like three in the morning and I just called my mom and I was like, okay, y'all can come get me. Like I'm done with this. So um, to be clear, the, the gangrenous hand was later. Uh, oh yeah. You're just later. saying, did you also try to get clean after the gangrenous hand? Yeah. It took a while though. It did it take a while. while. Okay. Yeah. So even that yeah. by by that later date, that wasn't necessarily enough to trigger another attempt. No. At no. sobriety and cleanliness. Okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. But you eventually did get clean. Uh, mm-hmm. How many? Like, I think this is relevant because of your work. So for you, how many like serious attempts? Let's say, let's define it as involving an actual facility of some sort. How many of the? How many takes did it? Tries did it take for you? Uh, I went to residential treatment 18 times. 18 times. Yep. In how, six different states. How old were you at the 18th time? Uh, 27. 18 times before 30, basically. Yep. My my first uh, outpatient was 15, and my last inpatient was 27. Wow. Wow. I mean, <laughs> you're alive. <laughs> yeah. You're still alive. Yeah. Praise yeah. the Lord. I know. I just and oh. so my my six years was actually September twenty third. Man, congratulations! That's yeah, thank you. That is insane. Okay, I want to talk about the process of getting clean. Uh, okay, but since you were even so young, let's just also include the last six years because this is a question about what you've learned about yourself, and I would imagine you've probably learned as much, if not more, in being able to reflect back as you've gotten older and your uh, prefrontal cortex is fully connected to your rest of your brain and all that. But so through that process, let's include getting clean and, you know, a few years of being clean. What are some things you learned about yourself that you weren't aware of other than the stuff you've already said in terms of describing some of those reasons for the addiction? Yeah. So I really, I am fully sold out on the, prefrontal cortex development um, as necessary for change because I, I literally remember around 25, 26 having somewhat more control over the thoughts of like, hey, go sell your car to the drug dealer. When before it was just like, absolutely, no question. Now I was really able to be like, nah, wait a minute you do that you're probably going to get sober again then you're not going to have a car and you're going to be really pissed at yourself and i i really so remembered that shift yeah and it, just to be clear in case people i i talk about this occasionally but your prefrontal cortex which is which is where you're able to like forecast into the future so this is one of the things that makes us human and not other kinds of primate and other animals is like we're really good comparatively at thinking months, years, days, hours ahead of where we're at right now. Think about a a well-trained dog can do a little bit of that. Well, if I take this now, maybe they won't pet me later or something. And barely, that would be like the best dog ever could barely do that. 
and and yeah. arguably they're not even they're just you've just trained them to sort of behave a certain way but humans can do that however this is why teenagers are so reckless this is the sort of anatomical reason that teenagers are reckless is that that cortex that frontal area slowly connects over time and and they actually keep pushing back the i, I was speaking with a, a neuroscientist on a recent episode and, and she said actually it's it's more like 29 now they used to think 26 but the idea mid late 20s is when yeah. you're getting much significantly more connection and and our our experience of that subjectively is being able to like withhold and think to the future which which also one of my my uh favorite little um body mind connection things is it's also like uh, decision making and consequences and so whenever you do something stupid or you're trying to remember either you'll smack yourself on the forehead or you'll sit there and rub your forehead yeah and it's, right, it's right, literally right. kind of your like stupid forebrain it's like we do these things that we think are <laughs> innocuous but it, it's a literal like brain body connection that's funny that one turned out that one turned out to be true yeah, yeah. okay but so i interrupted you so you yeah, you yeah. felt you felt um, that moment I did. I, I remember it distinctly. And it was and, and that it's very true in my group of friends as well. It's like we most of us either calm down or were, were able to kind of rein it in a little bit around that age. A, a lot of it, a lot of what I learned about myself was, was just kind of a, a failure to launch and immaturity um, because I started going to residential treatments at such a young age. I never had a um, savings account, a career, uh, my own house, my own anything. I mean, I, I got sent away when I was 17 and essentially I was on my own until I was 27, like in and out of treatment centers, sober living houses. And so I didn't learn how to survive on my own till way later. And so what kind of happens to the ego and pride is that while I'm watching my friends get married, get careers, they're in college, um, I'm still in treatment. It's almost easier to go with, you know, I, I would link up with the people that kind of hate on the system and like, oh, y'all are, you know, just cogs in the machine. And, you know, if, if I've already missed tryouts, then I'm just going to protest the football game. Right. And I was really good at crime and drugs and survival and extreme situations. And so it was like, well, I guess this is just what I'm going to do. And it's painful to try to, you know, and this is why I have such empathy for people that do try to get sober, especially later in life. It's like, it's very painful to admit that you're starting over at. 28, 38, 48, 58, 68. Um, it's, it's humbling and it's painful. Um, it's, it's necessary, but sometimes it's easier to just, just avoid it and just not even do that. Right. Um, yeah. That pressure of, Oh, I've, I'm 10 years, 15 years behind everybody I knew growing up in all yep. these, uh, agreed upon sort of societal goals and, and markers, right. Of, of sort of success which are all lies anyway. And that's, that's what you, you know, but, but it, it's lies that we are, you're very pressured to believe, you know, it's, it's very ingrained in our society that you go to college when you're 18, you graduate college when you're 24, you get married at 25, you have two kids by then you have to buy a house, you have to have this, you have to have that. And 
yeah, especially if they're, you know, I never really had any, any, like my parents never pressured me into being anything, you know, they're very good about that. But there are some people that it's very shameful to even like, oh, you're not, you're not an addict. We're not going to send you to treatment. You're not going to shame the family like that. You, you know, just suck it up or we're just going to bail you out constantly to right. avoid any public scrutiny. Taking a little break from this conversation with Jed here uh, to remind you that there is a Patreon campaign. You can support this show financially. Those who do, they get access to uh, at least two uh, exclusive episodes per month. The most recent one uh, from December is an incredible conversation with actually one of our patrons, Sandy Lynn Northington. We talk about her uh, restrictive uh, upbringing, um, sexually restrictive, that is, uh, her early marriage, um, some early molestation, and what would now be considered rape, um, and then her awful marriage and her freeing divorce and the work she's done, she's doing with women now uh, who go through these kind of divorces. And all that sounds... Um, pretty dark and plenty of it was dark, but the conversation itself was actually quite fun. Uh, a lot of laughter. I think I coined a term for her, uh, vibrator evangelist, (laughs) which you'll have to listen to, to get the context. Anyway, that's one example, but there are two of those, uh, sometimes more per month for patrons as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, which has become a very cool online community. And it is $5 a month. However, if that is really not in the cards for you, there is a sliding scale, in which case you can email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. To become a patron, head to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. The link is in the show notes as well. And let's get back to my conversation with Jed. So this is maybe the first kind of inroad into this idea of utilizing social services and and providing them as a as a kind of a kingdom ministry type thing is that you've got this population of young people and through mostly randomness they have been given sort of the short end of the stick genetically nurture wise whatever and for all of them, their prefrontal cortex is not connected yet. It's it's only partly connected. And so because of this random bad hand that they were dealt, they are a lot more likely to, to turn to all these unhealthy things, right, to sort of get through the day, get through the week, which then set them up for this kind of cascading problem, right? So social services of one kind or another are for, – for kids this age – they're they're designed as like a buffer, right? So they're like, let's keep these kids alive. Let's give them something that will help them, whether that is group therapy or substance stuff or, you know, whatever. Subsidized free lunch at school to to keep their nutrition up so that their brains can develop. There's just all these things. Like the way that I think of it at is like we're born with sort of a random inheritance that we didn't earn. 
And then those of us who get a shittier hand, this is sort of the job of the rest of us who got the good hand to like make sure that that is not a death sentence of one kind or another, be it physical Mm -hmm. death, you know, financial death, whatever that like, yeah, like because I got a good hand there. I got panic disorder, which is something it's quite significant. It's it's been a significant trial for me at various times in my life. But it's not the hand that you got, right? So there's we can we can grade these things. So I don't know. This is kind of the first way of thinking about that from like a theological lens, I guess. Do you was have anything to add? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like, there's uh, no question, just like a, an invitation to chat. Uh, yeah. yeah. So in my first gig for the first two years was working with adolescents, right? And I struggled and still do trying to figure out the most effective because my my big thing is I want to be effective. I don't like doing things just because they're written in a book and somewhat in someone who is massively disconnected from boots on the ground thinks is going to work. You try it out. It's useless. So most effective is, is what I strive to be. The things that were offered to me as a teenager, which have carried over my entire life, I was a youth group kid, and our youth pastors were extremely good mentors to us. There's like four of them. Still keep in contact with them. The things that you they... Love, you love to hear it. I will, and you really... You don't always like, hear that. From, you don't always hear people it. in this space. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm very happy no, to they, they were they were great. And I really, if I didn't have that anchor, who knows uh, where I would have been. Who knows? I mean, my mom would call them and they had like interventions on me a couple times. Uh, this is something you know. that I, I actually let's let's linger here for just two minutes that this sure. gets skipped over a lot in the kind of post evangelical deconstruction sort of world. Religious group belonging and all the things that come with it are like very well peer reviewed, established sources of meaning of healing, of social support, of value systems. Like, atheists, psychologists, and social workers agree on this. This is not even a controversial point in the literature. And Mm -hmm. so, and I understand a lot of us doing the talking in these spaces, or the writing as it may be, are ourselves survivors of various kinds of abuse. And you know, I'm particularly interested in spiritual and religious abuse, but... The broader context is that when people leave their faith communities, unless they are very toxic communities, so just let a statistically average community, let's just say, is a good thing for people on all yeah. these on all these metrics. And I just I love I love having a uh, an excuse to point that out with your uh, you know your anecdotal experience, but it's also in the literature. Yeah. And the the secular example is boys and girls clubs, right? Uh, Big boys brother, scouts. little sister. Right. Yep. Uh, yep. What was the one from uh, Role Models? Sturdy Wings. <laughs> um, <laughs> I need to rewatch that now that I'm oh, uh, going into the helping professions, as they call it. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. And and I, so just you saying that, I guess I'll, I'll retract. I I think the most effective thing is mentorship, and it's what I tried to do with the teenagers I worked with was. You know, because it's important for them to have someone who is not viewed as, you know, because of my age, I would kind of assume 
sort of, you know, the, the transference to me would have been like the older brother type, uh, possibly sometimes father figure more often than not kind of like the, the older brother. And so I would, you know, relate to them on their level and then, you know, pepper in little like that shit's not cool, man. You know, like, you know, you're doing this, you know, you want to know it's really awesome is like, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's really important for them. It was for me. And it's, it's just true is having a good older mentor role model that will be real with you, not preach to them from a position of inexperience, um, not give them the same tired stuff. Um, also, you know, not cosign what they're going through, but someone that'll present an attractive alternative proposition. Yeah, that's awesome. So anyway, we were going somewhere else, though. You were saying uh, when you were working with the adolescents, and I think you're responding to my my idea of like they got a worse hand dealt to them and they're not mm-hmm. old enough yet to sort of even use the full capacities of their own mind to figuring out what their future is going to look like. Yeah, with the ones that had especially terrible hands, their their parents are drug addicts, their parents are completely unsupportive, they have no chance if they're staying at home. We will usually, I would usually immediately begin to equip them for getting out. Like, we're not even going to try to fix your parents. We're not going to try to fix this relationship. Here's how you uh, apply for jobs. Here's how you apply for scholarships. Here's how you do grants. Here's how you take care of yourself. But also, like, here are some programs that will aid you in living somewhere, right? Because the, the kind of... Not to pick too much on Republicans or whatever, but the sort of standard (laughs) right wing, you know what? It's the parents' responsibility. Like individual responsibility is what will make our country great or whatever. It's like, yeah, that is part of the story. But for a 16-year-old with two addict parents, that is not an option. It's not going to happen. There need to be other things in place that are well-funded, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that like so that that kid has a shot. Right. And I, I will give some kudos to religious folks. Social services in that regard are terrible. Like group homes are awful. Foster homes are, well, I, I, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Generally, they're not good. Okay, they're underfunded. The people yep. work there don't care. There are foster homes that are run by like the well-meaning more often than not, they're Christians that will just let kids stay with them at their house. I used to think that was kind of creepy. What's what's going on? But after talking to so many of them, that's really that's just they have it placed on their heart to do this, yeah. and and that's what they do. And I I really applaud those people, and those are the best situations. Like when you when you take a kid out of this chaotic environment and you put them in a home with actual love, without any ulterior motives, it's it, you can really see some change there. Yeah, that's good. That's good to note. So we started texting uh, a couple weeks ago because I started learning this method in my own grad school called motivational interviewing. And you had texted me about getting like uh, this certificate and you're you're working on your own training, but you're now a uh, certified addictions counselor. Did I get that right? Registered. Close enough. Registered. Okay. Like a registered nurse. Close. Okay. Yep. And you were like, oh, yeah, MI, motivational interviewing. I use it all the time. And so we started chatting, and 
I think that this is the kind of thing that it sounds like it's very, oh, what a, that's so in the weeds. You're talking about your process, but I don't think it is at all. I think that what's powerful about it is that there's something really sort of over overarchingly true about human psychology that mm-hmm. it gets at. Would, would you agree with that assessment? Oh, yeah. Es- okay. Especially in regards to substance abuse. Okay. So since you actually understand it much better than me, why don't you give us a brief definition of motivational interviewing? So it's like based in Rogerian, <laughs> Rogerian, like Rogerian, yeah. Humanistic, um, so client-centered. Client-centered. The client is so, the expert on themselves. We're not yes. the experts on them. We have some yeah. knowledge. We're bringing it. It's collaborative, right? Yes. My, my role is to become the helper in the change process and express acceptance of the client. A lot of it is dealing with overcoming ambivalence. So especially in substance abuse, while I can plainly see, and usually everyone else can plainly see, that this person probably should get sober, uh, they are ambivalent about it. Either they were forced into treatment by the court, by their parents, by whatever, they still might not see a reason, right? It's big on avoiding direct argument. There's a type of residential treatment called uh, therapeutic communities, which is kind of more old school. It was more popular uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. And that that is like tearing you down, telling you all about yourself, whether you asked for it or not, being bluntly honest, verging on mean. (laughs) Like I went to one of those that actually worked really well for me, but a lot of people can't handle it. Yeah, like a really a real tough love kind of approach. Tough love, right? Yes. That, by the way, that avoiding direct argument to change someone's mind is, I think, the bit that I'm so interested in. I think because I did depolarize for a few years – Two or three years there, and I'm really interested in how people actually change their minds. And so when I started reading that part, I was like, oh, this is like, this is my shit right here. This is what I, you know, this resonates so much. Anyway, go on. Yeah. And, 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 you know, another principle is listening and and not telling, like gently persuading. And, And it's going back to operating on the assumption that Dan knows everything about Dan to change Dan's behavior, like intrinsically, somewhere deep down in there. So, you know, there is a certain piece of assessing where they're at, what their motivations are, what their goals are, okay? And then getting them to figure out for themselves why they would want to change or if they want to change or how they could even do that, right? Okay, so like let, my, me jump, let me jump in here because yeah. here's where I have my anecdote. One of the ways that they recommend doing this is rather than – Telling someone or just repeating all the reasons to change, which is a very natural thing for us to do to to like as friends or anytime we're talking to somebody who's like, well, I think I might break up with him. And you really think that they should break up with him. You will give like, yeah, you know, I never really I don't really trust him. I've never you know, you go there. You think what I should do is lay out the evidence for why this person should leave him. That is our natural reflex as just people. And they argue that is opposite, that if you do that, then the other person will go, yeah, but you don't understand this, this, and this about him. They will even the scales, right? So if you say, for instance, if you flip that around and you go, man, sounds like heroin is really great. 
you you might think that's a very dangerous thing to say, but they argue that then the person will go, well, yeah, but like also I lost my car and my girlfriend left me and they will even the scales and, and remind themselves of the negative stuff. So one of the, one of the little tactics in the book that they, that these two guys wrote is ask someone the three best reasons for them to make this change. And this is what you were saying, that they are the expert on themselves. They know the best motivations somewhere inside. This is how powerful this shit is, Jed. I was reading that passage about asking someone that in the abstract. And I, my response as a reader was, oh, you know, I have been thinking about going to personal training. And the, and the three yeah. best reasons are, Soren, my son, being able to like play with him, uh, you know, feeling more fitness and being more attractive to my wife, like within reason. I'm not going to be Fabio, but like, you know, and it was like I just did it to myself unconsciously reading about it. And I have now started personal training. There Uh, you go. So it's like that to me was like, okay, there's obviously something here. I can't believe it. That just reading about it actually did it to me, you know, uh, and yeah, I happen and- to be in this ambivalent on the fence situation with this with this decision. So I is exactly the kind of client. Right. Anyway, I've been talking for a while. Yeah, no. And it, it especially with addiction. Right. So it's, you know, one of the the hallmarks of substance abuse is is selfishness and needing to be in control and rejecting authority. And so I've always said, if you tell me to do it. I'm automatically not going to want to do it. You it, you could be like, hey, I'm going to need to give you a million dollars. I'm like, why? What What is that for? Like, what are you talking about? So when you, in the girlfriend scenario, you're immediately showing your hand and your opinion by listing out the reasons to break up. You're also becoming the adversary in that conversation. And so the part of me that wants to stay with that girlfriend is going to kick in and be like, well, who, who the hell are you, bro? Like, hold up, dude. No. And it's like this automatic response. Right. Whereas so, saying uh, what what are some what would be the best reasons to leave? And then you go, well, actually, like he he kind of he hit me last week. I'm like, yeah. Oh, and then that person saying it out of their own mouth. Right. That is so much more powerful. Yeah, because then it's their words, not yours. That's a big thing, too. And that's why like getting really good collateral interviews or initial assessments are good because so you can have as much of their own black and white words that you can be like, well, da 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 da. Something I I did recently uh, with a client who was struggling with the idea of wanting to eventually be able to use Xanax and weed recreationally, I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe so. I was like, well, all right, so let's, you know, let's run, let, let's really figure this out. So what what would, like, let's try to figure, let's imagine a scenario in which you're able to use Xanax and weed recreationally. Like, so like, how can we set your life up around that? And he immediately was like, well, I'm, I'm not, I don't think, you know, I don't think I can. I'm like, no, no, like for real. And, and I was genuinely interested. I'm like, because I enjoy those kind of puzzles. I was like, let's, let's see what we can do. So like, all right, you'd have to get a prescription. Like how much, what dose are we looking at? Where are you going to work? How much money are we going to make? He immediately was like, no, it's not going to work out. Another good one too with, that is awesome. Yeah. And another going too with, with clients that want to leave treatment if they have nowhere to go, it's like, okay, cool. Well let's, um, so do you know, 
you know, do you know what time you have to be at the homeless shelter? You know, you got to be there by five or you can't check in. Like, do you have your ID? Um, do you know where it's at? And just getting into the details, just going with it. And they'll, going with then it, they're yeah. like, oh, wait, that's not what I want. In my head, it's this freedom. But like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about what actually you're going to have to do to live homelessly. Like, do you know where the soup kitchens are at? Do you know where they serve lunch? But it's so, it's so interesting because you could do that same thing framed just slightly differently and go, well, you know, I really wouldn't recommend leaving the facility because here's all the stuff you're going to have to do. And then they'll go, well, yeah, but here's all the stuff that it would be great about it. Yeah, I guess I'll have to overcome that. But actually playing along with it and going, cool. All right. So let's let's figure this out. So like, what will be your first step? Like where how are you going to figure out your ID situation? Because you know, you will need that, of course, when you go to the soup kitchen. Right. Yep. But like you're playing their advocate. You're playing the role of their advocate. And then, oh, now they're going to think of it in the opposite way. It's so cool and weird that it works that way. Part of what led me to go into this field was that I had spent so much time in treatment and I've, you know, different modalities, different counselors, different counseling types that like I've essentially been trained on this for years. And I do have to fight the the tendency to assume that what worked and did not work on me will work and not work on everyone. Sure. But I, and also through addiction, I am very well trained in manipulation and, you know, can nobody out junkie a junkie like a junkie? And it's like, okay, you, you know, we can do this. <laughs> I love it's using my, using my powers for good. You know, it's like, you're not going to get one over on me. I love to hear that. I mean, that's one of the things that I look forward to in becoming a clinician is sort of using, you know, my, my decent, my decently significant kind of mental prowess which I have like some raw computing power up here and make up for it and my lack of other kinds of mostly physical power, but like using it for good, like getting in the weeds and like, uh, it's a chess game. Yes. And I'm really looking forward to that. Like, it seems like a worthy adversary, you know, for the, for the skill set. like, okay, you know, let's do this. So I think that this motivational interviewing stuff, this kind of, it's that mix of Carl Rogers and the almost like reverse psychology to just really just look at how people actually change. Has that bled over for you into just thinking about other interpersonal interactions or how people change their minds or I don't know, living with a partner, any of that stuff? That's an interesting thing because, you know, trying not to, you know, also my supervisor, made sure to hammer home the fact that, you know, leave your, leave your work hat at work. And he, he went so far as to, he had like a totem, right? So he had his, his name badge that he would wear around his neck. And, and every time he left, he would take it off and hang it on, on his door hook. And he would literally like symbolically kind of mentally switch gears. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you with, especially with a marriage, it is not good for me to try to play counselor to my wife. I will, I will let you know right yeah, now. Yeah, I feel like I I already know that I'm going to have to learn that the hard way. Like I'm yeah, like just at the beginning where I'm tempted to do it. I don't quite I don't quite have the ability to do it yet cuz I just don't have enough skill, but I'm like cuz I'm already kind of trying out all these ideas, I'm like I kind of like I <laughs> No, I literally did this the other day. Jeffrey was on her phone. And she had kind of been on her phone a bunch and like 
Soren was down for his nap. And I thought about saying like, hey, you know, you probably should get off your phone. Like, I, I know you've got some stuff you'd like to get done. You got two hours here. But I thought, no, I'm not going to phrase it that way. So I was like, hey, so um, what are what are the things you're hoping to get done today? And then she just was like, shut up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> she yeah, saw yeah. right they through know. it. She yeah. saw right through it. And I was like, okay, okay, good to know. That didn't work. That's not going to work here. Uh, it was really funny though. Th- that that was a pretty mild, you know, no real consequences situation. Yeah, I, I think the one of the bigger takeaways is not giving unsolicited advice. So people, know, and I'm sure you too. So people know what I do. I'm very public about that, and so I do get calls often about which this will probably lead us eventually into the uh, compassion thing. We're we're about to go there right now. Go yep. for it. I, I, I get in. calls often about. Uh, things people are going through. And so I make sure I never give unsolicited advice. And I'm even careful about giving advice, period, especially relationship stuff. Because at the end of the day, you know, Dan's got to go to sleep with Dan. I have to go to sleep with me. So I'm not going to tell you to divorce your wife because that's your life. You're going to have to live with that decision. Like if you ask, I will, you know, I can, I can, give my opinion. Um, and more, like I said, I, I try to, I've found to just listening and letting people talk it out. I guess that's probably my, the counseling strategy I rely on the most is that, you know, I will eventually. Um, and when I talk to like my sponsor or, um, mentors, it's usually I will come to the answers myself when I'm just talking about it. Like as soon as I say something, I realize how stupid I sound or like how obvious the answer is. So it's, it's just kind of letting people get there themselves. You know, the, the goal of, of counseling is for everyone to become their own counselor sort of thing. But yeah, with that, you know, it's, it's also talking about compassion fatigue, where, some days, you know, and especially in this in this past year, it's like I will get home from work and I get I'll see a call come in from one of my friends that I know is going through stuff and I don't have it in me to talk anymore. I don't it's not that I don't care, it's like I'm incapable. Like I need it's the double-edged sword of since I do struggle with my own things, I think it and I'm very empathetic. I think it makes me an effective counselor. I also struggle with my own things and I'm empathetic. So I am like a sponge soaking in all this pain and trauma and craziness. And I'm full sometimes, you know, or, or sometimes I burst uh, and that that's when things get destructive. I'm putting this together now that maybe part of what's going on in the way that within Christian teaching, we tend to so emphasize the self-sacrificial side of things, which is very clearly present in Jesus. Like there's no way around that. He died, right? He accepted crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's literally as self-sacrificial as one gets, but most Christian teaching is coming from men to use kind of language in in the psych world. It's normed on male teachers and therefore we don't often get the kind of teaching that is the other side of the of the balance of the balancing act which is love your neighbor as yourself uh not Mm. pour yourself out entirely for your neighbor and then cease to exist uh (laughs) and if and i think that you actually 
I don't know if this could be proven, but I would guess that you could show that when women teach in faith settings, they are probably more likely to bring up this self-care aspect because they are traditionally the ones who are doing the actual pouring out and the giving of themselves and, and burning out on that just, you know, roughly statistically compared to the men who have the places of more privilege in most settings. But it is there. You can't, you know, a lot of people always use the, the, the oxygen mask in the airplane, you know, put on your own mask before you help others. If you have nothing to give, you can't give anything like it's, yeah, it's real. It's oh, math. It's very right? real. It's very real. And there, you know, the most effective thing I have in my life is more ex- like decades longer experienced counselors that I can talk to. And, you know, there are some days when like I can't meet with any clients, just can't. I know that I will be useless, borderline harmful. And so it's like, I'm not going to, you know, you're going to work with clients that are exhausting or borderline personality are, are the most exhausting or, you know, manipulate you by, you know, sharing with other counselors like, oh, my counselor doesn't care about me. They never see me or that are just these straight up manipulations and uh, attention seeking and lies or, you know, dealing with lots of failures or lots of lots of client deaths um suicides overdoses getting close to clients caring for them they were you know it's funny i i'm i've more proven to myself that it seems like there are like 14 types of people in the world because i have seen my friends as clients so many times and there's just like this this there's like a type right and so you're reminded of people and it, it it can get just so disheartening and, you know, you start to, you know, I've, I've had periods where I just dread meeting with clients or I, uh, you know, the anxiety I feel on a Monday morning having to go into work knowing I've got this just toxic caseload that I'm going to have to deal with. And it's at those times I envy who I would consider the worst counselors that just look at it as a job and that, you know, they don't care. Like they really don't care. They're just like, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go buy this textbook and da, 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 da. I'm learning to have that balance of being compassionate and caring, but also being able to disconnect. They're not my friends. They're not my children. They're not my, I have to be careful crossing, crossing boundaries. And at the beginning I made the mistake of, using the counseling technique of, of self-revelation, like, you know, telling yeah, about my life, telling about my experiences, right. self-disclosure. And I realize how that can be used against you. And a lot of my experiences is through making mistakes, which is fine. They haven't really been costly, but, I, but I've learned those mistakes. And, you know, and it's simple things with self-disclosure. Instead of saying that I used to steal from Walmart, all you have to simply do is say, Uh, this guy I know used to steal from Walmart, you know, simple things like that, where you can give detailed descriptions that say, you know what you're talking about, but you don't have to say that you did it, that they can then use against you and say, well, my counselor's a thief or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so so overcoming, and I I think it's just, I hate using the term seasons, but it it really is. It's like, it comes in waves and 
you know, taking mental health days, like, because when I'm, when I'm fully compassion fatigued, I do not, I don't care. I start looking at them, at my clients as adversaries or, you know, just numbers. It becomes just a job for me. And, and, and this is where my, my faith really comes in handy where like, I'm, I am most successful I've found when I, I pray nightly for my caseload. I've had success with that. Like things have changed. Like I've had like awful clients that I didn't know what was going to happen. And I prayed for them uh, consistently and, and things happened. I can't really, you know, and whether that was a change in my, whatever, something happened, something changed some way, yeah. somehow. When I can view the person that I might personally dislike as God sees them, I'm in a much better space. When I start seeing them as just an aggravating person that I can't, I don't care about, like, you think you've got problems? Like, I got this stuff going on with me. Then I'm in trouble. And that's where I need to step back, figure out what I need to rearrange and either take some time for myself, uh, double down on prayer or talk to someone about it. Um, there's a lot of gallows humor in clinical teams, right? A lot of kind of, you know, you got to bond over that. I, I am blessed with a really good team that is there for each other. And we can talk to each other about, you know, if, if we're having trouble with specific people or if I'm like, Hey, I can, I can't do group today. Like I'm just, I got too much going on with like mentally, like, yeah, I'll, I'll cover for you. Like things like that are very important. Um, that's how just people burn out. If you just keep trying to push through it when you got nothing there, like the, the engine's going to fall off. It just is. I want to, I want to hear a little bit more about the prayer. I have a couple different thoughts about it. The first is, there is a way of thinking about the efficacy of prayer that can be, and I'm not accusing you of this, that can be, that can kind of get us off the hook for doing anything else. Like when people say things like, well, the most powerful thing we can do is pray. Like that is the most effective thing we can do in this situation. And almost anytime I hear that, given whatever I happen to know about the situation, I'm like, no, it's like vote or it's, you know, uh, it's call this person or it's what, you know, it's bring a meal, right? Like, so I want to, first of all, just want to be clear. I doubt that you're saying, but I want to give you the chance to say like, this is not prayer in lieu of doing your job or whatever. Right. Right. It's, it's making my job easier. So when I am running on, uh, all cylinders in my prayer routine, I will usually, say a quick prayer before an individual session. I will say a quick prayer before a group session. If a group is getting heated, sometimes I'll close my eyes and invite a peaceful spirit into the room. And then in, in my nightly stuff, if I'm having, uh, and this is, this is ideal. I do not do this all the time, but just pray for the specific situations of my clients. Right. And I think what that does in practice is, I'm already thinking about them, especially if they're difficult. And typically it's going to be resentful about why they're irritating me, why they're annoying me, why I have to deal with this stuff, that sort of thing. And so when I intentionally pray for them, it's rearranging that person in my mind, right? So um, you've got some theories about this, about what's going on. I, I truly do believe that there's a supernatural piece to it. And then I believe that there's also a, a psychological piece to it B because usually when I'm 
things like compassion fatigue and burnout and getting resentful are all selfish based ideas, right? It's all thinking about how, you know, poor me, this is how this is affecting me. Right. And that's, and you know, my recovery training, that's when I am assuming control of my own life. And I'm worried about this situation because I believe that I'm in control of this situation and I'm in control of the outcome. And so when I'm able to zoom back out in the macro and assign responsibility to whom it is responsible, then I don't have to worry anymore. Like, okay, I'm not, you know, I I do believe that everyone put on my caseload is put on my caseload. Um, I kind of go that far with it. And so when I say, okay, you know, this was, this was kind of meant to be, then what am I really worried about? And I don't need to, you know, I don't need to stress. I just need to kind of ask for wisdom, guidance, and just kind of go from there. You know, quit worrying about outcomes and saying the wrong thing or things like that, I suppose. When I'm able to do that consistently, things work smoother. When I do not do that, I am much more prone to engage in cynicism, resentment, being physically tired, just being mentally exhausted um, because... I'm thinking about how it's just affecting me and my life and how I'm being inconvenienced and and all these things. Yeah. So that's one way of thinking about how your faith impacts your work. What's another way that like your, your Christian commitment or commitments or beliefs or whatever come into play with this work? So a recent example is working with um, sex offenders and people that molested children. Um, Whew. Yeah. I, I've got a, I have a classmate who, who does that work now at the master's level. So he's getting his, his doctorate and, but he's already doing this work and man, I mean, he's told us some stories and, and, and it's like, that's the Lord's work, dude. I mean, yeah. I, people who, feel a calling to that. I think it is some of the most insane and beneficial work out there, but it's yeah. like, you know, it takes a certain kind of person. It does. And, and I don't necessarily think I have a calling for it, but it, it has, it has come up. And this, this kind of talks about being uh, value neutral as well. My faith, I believe allows me to be value neutral more so than others just by I've had other clinicians, you know, straight up be unable to work with someone or they can't get over the fact that they can't separate this person from what they've done. And maybe it's because it's the whole thing to him who has been forgiven much, you know, they can forgive much. It's like I I know full well my proclivity for doing unspeakably evil things. And so I can understand that and and I'm able to it's it's not an excuse of the behavior but I'm able to see past that and see like oh man like you're you know you're jacked up dude like I it's it's more of a I don't want to say pity I guess it's more it's just a a sympathy and it's just like okay well you know let's someone's got to do something like why not me I guess or you know we can we can try so I, this I is really interesting, this this conversation around value neutrality, because I think that there's a lot of ways to misunderstand it. So, for instance, a lot of conservative Christians who are worried about therapy, 
they will hear someone say something like, yeah, I mean, my therapist said that their job is neither to get me divorced or to keep me married. And a, and a certain kind of Christian will hear that and go, well, then that's not a good profession to be in because it should be to keep you married. Right. And right. so that, that's like one way of hearing about value neutrality that can be very scary to people. And sometimes that's overblown. And, and sometimes there are some real conflicts there. You know, it depends on the counselor and the theological or practical commitments of the Christian. For instance, you know, I would run into that with clients probably a lot less often than maybe some other more thoroughly secular therapists. But if somebody believed that, like, even occasional physical abuse is not enough reason to leave a marriage, well, then I would disagree. And we, that would be a genuine conflict that I would mm -hmm. think, no, if, if someone is hitting you, uh, you can leave and you ought to leave at least for the time being to work on this because staying is counterproductive and that's not what we're here for. You know, so yep. there could be a genuine disagreement or there could be a perceived disagreement that's not real. But the kind of value neutrality you're talking about is like I'm in the room with this person and I, the way I think of it is I am mature and secure enough in myself as the clinician that I can handle anything they're throwing at me and that I'm not working out my own shit about how people need to be. I'm doing air quotes here, mm -hmm. right? So that so that I can really be there with them. And that to me is like that kind of value neutrality is like, I don't know, like what Christ clearly had, that Jesus right. could be in all these settings and it didn't phase him. And he it didn't, you know, ideally we would be there where it doesn't throw our lives into disarray to be around. Like one thing they've said in my training a couple times is like you need to present as unfazed. Like yes. once someone thinks that they've phased you, oh, see, I am. I am too bad for you because you even are surprised by what I did. I'm that bad. And you have to be like, no, I've heard it all. You know, like yep. we're, we're we can talk about anything, man. You know, a lot of a lot of predators as well. That's part of the thing is there is a certain braggadocious bravado about recounting the crimes and it's that's what they get off on is is reaction and i i've definitely learned to get your poker face down and just like yeah okay yeah like and just very and sometimes inside i'm i'm screaming i mean there was there was and this was earlier on the one time i was i was unable to be value neutral and i had to um, I mean, I told my supervisor, I, I can't work with them. It was with a, a, a very young kid who was um, abusing his very younger daughter and just very sociopathic, dead eyed. And I, I had like visions of, of like assaulting this kid. Like I, it was I was so repulsed and disgusted. And I was just like, I can't I can't do it. Like can't be in the room with him. Like, I'm sorry. That was really the the only time, especially with with my religion and being value neutral is in and in uh, specifically substance abuse settings like spirituality is a big part of it. And early on, I, you know, I wanted to, you know, preach the gospel and like especially in medical settings, you can't and should not do that. Right. And it is just 
it's a very loaded, you know, you'll work with people that were being raped by their father who recited the Lord's prayer while they were raping them. Uh, so yeah. when they hear God, there is a physical reaction. It doesn't matter what you say after that. If they link you with that, you're done. The, the therapeutic relationship is, is severed. So it's, I, I've actually, I really kind of enjoy it now. I directly confront people's like, you know, because people always conflate religion with God, with spirituality. And it's like really like, no, okay, let, let's really think about like, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Who taught you to believe it? And, you know, what do you want to leave behind? And what do you want to believe now? And it's like, I will, I always think of like Mr. Rogers, like the greatest example of like a Christian you never really knew was a Christian. He just did it. And it's like, okay, I, I can just do that. I don't need to say these specific things um it's more effective to come through the side door and just like really get people thinking right and that so that really makes me go back to though these tenets of motivational interviewing like in one sense at a very very removed level very thirty thousand foot view preaching has it all wrong now not totally because a motivational interviewer would tell you that once somebody really wants to change, uh, then you can give them resources, advice or whatever, because they're at that point. And you could argue that anybody sitting in the church pew is at the point where they want to be there. They want to hear a sermon like they are you know, choosing to submit themselves to that experience. So in a non maybe not from the pulpit, but let's say the way that, you know, pastors will talk on news shows or more public messaging type stuff. To the extent that we make that a sermon, we are just lit. We're breaking all the rules of how this psychology works. And we're just ensuring that people don't take us seriously in the future. And and this this core insight of MI, I think, gives me some language for thinking about why that doesn't work when the preacher goes on the news and says, this is because of our acceptance of homosexuality that this hurricane came or whatever, you know, what, that's a right. silly example, but fill, fill in the blank, you know, or we've lost our way. And then a bunch of people who work at an AIDS clinic are like, we've lost our way. You've lost your fucking way, dude. I'm yeah. with dying AIDS people every day. Right. So there's, there's something really interesting and connected there. In my, my favorite, because it's fun. Oftentimes, if you sat in a group, you would think that I am not a Christian because my, my favorite type of client recently is the older set in their ways. Oh, I, I'm a Christian. I'm religious. But they're, if you really press, they're not really. And mm. so they will, you know, say something like, you know, suicides go to hell and I'd be like, oh, yeah, what, what verse is that? You know, and I'll use my knowledge and I'm like, where did you, so who, who taught you that? What, yeah, well, that's like, what verse is that from? And they're like, well, it's in the Bible. I'm like, oh, like where though? You know, is that really, you know, and why, <laughs> like, actually that's, that's not, that's not the case. And like, I'll really, you know, it, it's the idea of like, if you really lived the faith that you claim, what are you doing here? And people don't like that. You know, it, people don't like to people really don't like to admit that or someone that's like, you know, we'll have the the preacher type that will preach in group and then fly off the handle when someone changes the TV. And it's like, Hey, well, so what do you think Jesus would have done in that situation? Like, do you, you know, like it's, yeah. it's one thing to say this, but like, how, how are you living it out? You know, what, what's really going on there? And it's, 
I really love challenging people on what they say they believe, but look at the evidence and how you're living. What does that say? Like, what do you actually believe? It's, it's usually they're not the same. People have this, because I know I did, this feeling that if you attack that about me, then it, it's this identity crisis and like, oh, well, crap. Like, is he, is he right? No, he's not right because this is what the Bible says. And it's like, I'm not even trying to attack. It's like, whoa, man, like calm down. I'm just, I'm just simply like, let's really look at what's going on. You know, my, my, my favorite phrase is like, how's that working for you? You know, uh, you know, I, especially with, with drugs and addiction, it's like, if, if y'all could have figured out how to make it work doing drugs, then what are you waiting on? Why didn't you? Were you really biding your time? Like, just why didn't you make it work? Why can't you? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much there with the beliefs versus behavior and actions and stuff. You know, I'm, I'm working on this dissertation idea right now and I'm, there's a survey that's a big element of it. And I'm trying to figure out like, how do I, I want to find like concrete events more than like cognitive attitudes because those are so flexible, you know, but that's a rabbit trail. Well, I guess just lastly, Judd, I just want to give you one more opportunity. We, We have been kind of, we've been coming in and out of this idea of, you know, social work as kingdom work of one sort or another. And so I guess just if you have anything else to add on, on that theme uh, that we haven't gotten to, I'd love to hear it. I think I really feel as though it, it is like my calling, which is why, you know, I've done, and this is, this is not to mitigate or uh, denigrate any other sort of work. Right. But when I was, you know, I've had really high paying jobs in like uh, manual labor or whatever. And it's like, that was great. But I felt so unsatisfied. And I was like, this just isn't what I, I like, what am I doing? I'm just working for money. And I'm good at this. There are the times when I really feel like I am doing things that are changing the world or people's lives. Um, and and I, I mean that with as little ego as possible. Like I, it, no, I, I, I hear I really you. do. Let me phrase it this way. If you felt, and I, I'm not saying you don't feel this way, but let's say that what we're talking about is I, Jed, am being called by God to be a pastor, to be in ministry. Would you then quit this job and go to seminary or start a church? Or is this that job? I think this is that job. It's cool. You know, it's it's just these are this is my flock. Like these are my people. Like I've, I've just had so many experiences where someone has come in, we've just started talking and they have that feeling or they've said it like, Oh man, I'm not the only one. Or like, Oh crap. Like you too. And it's like, that's all I want. It's, it's the relationship and then the hope that they can one day get there. Cause that's what was done for me. I, I am standing on the shoulders of my counselors who I still talk to that just changed my life. And I looked up to them and, and that's how this whole thing works. And you know, there is no better really field as far as like living out a, a Christian life of like, you know, and that it, it is so hard and it sucks. And I really, a lot of things were going wrong as I was approaching my, my test to, to get licensed. And 
my supervisor who, who just happened to be Christian too, um, would always tell me is like, man, it's, you know, be prepared for opposition when you're about to do something, you know, the forces of darkness, whatever you want to call it, doesn't like it when you're about to, you know, they don't like it when you're being effective and useful. And that was, it seemed to be true for me, but it's like, now that I've kind of gotten on the other side of that, things, things have relaxed and I'm a little more comfortable. And it's, I've, there was a period where I was like, I don't want to do this. This is, I, I'm tired of uh, dealing with all, like soaking up everybody's problems and dealing with death and, and despair all the time. But it's like, but I'm, but it's like what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I can't get away. It's what I'm, I'm just, it just comes so naturally. So it's, it's, it like it or not, you know, this, this is my calling, you know, you know, Jesus only had to do it for 33 years though. So I think he, he knew, he knew (laughs) when it was time to get out. Oh, that's, but yeah, it's, I I think you, and you'll find too, it's like you either, you either have it or you don't. And if if you don't, you're not going to last. Like if, if you're in this work for prestige or, to build well, yourself up. First of all, up. anybody who's doing social work for prestige, <laughs> dude. Uh, I mean, I don't. Maybe I just come from a very like a uh, you know white collar privileged background, but well, prestige well, in my mind so- is like tech entrepreneur or something, you know. Well, it's it's it can be a different kind of prestige where you put all your value into whether or not your clients succeed, and we'll have some counselors that sure will defend. If we bring up their client and staffing that they're doing something wrong, the counselor would be like, well, no, no, he's really doing good because they see that as a reflection on them. And it's like, no, it has nothing to do with you. And like your worth as a counselor is not dependent on how many of your clients quote succeed or whatever. That's not what it's about. Like it's just about the relationship, inspiring change. And just maybe even it's about just giving them, it might be, in 60 days, they hear one thing that I said, and that one thing might click with them five years from now. Right. And that's worth it in that case. You know, I might never see the result or yeah, or I may never hear about it again, which is probably often the case. But just knowing that, okay, I am doing what was put in front of me and hopefully I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Hopefully I'm saying what I'm supposed to say. And that's all that's all I can really do. Well, and and you're using things like motivational interviewing because there is evidence that they work. You're Mm -hmm. you're not just it's because it almost sounds a little bit like uh, the person who passes out tracts at the boardwalk. Well, maybe (laughs) some of them will become a Christian someday. Who knows? (laughs) Maybe I planted the seed, but there's actually no real reason to think that you you didn't take any special care in it, you just like handed something out, probably to make yourself feel better. Yes. I don't want to denigrate every everybody that does that, but you know, yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty low impact work. But you're talking about like uh, the way you're saying something might click five years later. It's like, but also what goes into that is a lot of very serious work and thinking about what is the most effective thing I can do during this limited time I have with this person, and that is where I actually find a tremendous overlap between science and, and a Christian worldview that like, yes, it's not about my ideas going with my gut, you know, like I have, am some special person. I'm submitting myself to the process of like, there's a whole cloud of witnesses, if you will, trying this stuff out, making it better, like trying to be humble, coming up with better ideas. Um, and so that, that's a, that's a part of it too, in, in a way that I think is important. 
you know, and there are going to be, you know, there are situations that keep me up at night. You know, one, one that comes to mind was we had to kick someone out for something they did and they uh, committed suicide uh, two days later. And that things like that really make you stop and think like, did I do the right thing there? Am I, do I have blood on my hands? Am I responsible? And that it's, it's going back to, I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. It's like, yes, there is still like, I've a lot of my prayers sometimes have been like, God, I hope that whenever, whenever I get there that you tell me like, you know, good job, my good and faithful servant and not like, Ugh, you kind of, you kind of fumbled that one. And, and I'm, I do, I'm, I know for a fact that I do, but that's when I have to remember that it, it's not, I didn't cause it. It's not, it's not but my the, fault. The real fumble is not the outcome of the person for whom you were 0.5% of all the influences in their life. The real right. fumble right. is I preached at this client because I was feeling anxious in the moment about my dad. And it, yeah. this guy was reminding me of my dad yes. and I was working out my own shit with them when I when it was my job to be out of the way and let them work on their shit. Right? True. That's the fumble. Like, yeah. you know, it's 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 doing the wrong work in the room because you were dealing with your own stuff in an immature or whatever kind of a way and not being professional, right? Like yep. it's not Which the, happens the big too, though. Fl- what that happens too, but the big flashy yeah. outcome they committed suicide. Yeah. There's a lot of factors that went into that. You know, mm-hmm. if you did your work right and as well as you could and weren't, you know, breaking those, pra- those norms and best practices, then, you know, then that wasn't enough, but that's not on you kind of a thing. Yeah. One other thing, um, just thing I'd, I had picked up is understand, like I used to believe that I had to be practicing everything I teach 100% accurately for fear oh, of being a of hypocrite. Of course, right. And that's do just that, like right. so, yeah, I've had so many like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, no, a lot of times I will be teaching a group or an individual session and I'm basically talking to myself and I'm saying something like, oh, you know, you don't do any of that right now, Jed, but maybe you should. But it's like I still like it doesn't make it any less true. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I want to thank Nick Woods, who I believe is the one who initially asked that question over a year ago of you have permission to, uh, you know, use social services as kingdom work. He probably phrased it better than I did. But, Jed, you also have your own podcast. It's still going uh, yep. regularly. Church and yes. other drugs. There'll be a yes, link sir. to that in the show notes, yep. of course. Anything else you want me to to point to? Uh, no, that's it for now. Um, yeah, Church and Other Drugs, my podcast. Yeah, uh, uh, thanks for having me on, though. I really appreciate it, man. That dude, was a good talk. Great conversation. Really kind of where my mind's at these days. So good timing on all that. And thank you so much for just sharing your experience and your insights on this. Yeah, anytime. Check out Jed's show if that sounds interesting to you. Today's conversation was edited by Josh Gilbert. He is available for additional editing work. Check out his email in the show notes. Become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is in the notes as well. And I think that's it. See you guys next week in the new year. And uh, one or two, a couple of these weeks, maybe two or three weeks, 
in January and February, there will be uh, additional episodes in the main feed, probably on Thursdays, because I have I've got too many. I recorded too many great conversations, and I don't want to sit on new conversations for three months at a time. So that means I got to get them out into the world. And uh, I think that's it. Hope you guys had a nice holiday season or are having rather a nice holiday break. I know I have another week and a half left before classes really get going, which is just fantastic. Okay. See you guys. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.